0: Thank you all for coming. Um, Now, when I was asked to give this talk, I was told that usually um, these talks last about 45 minutes. So what I want to do is the first 20 minutes, I want to talk about the project I was uh, engaged in for the last couple of years. And then the second part of my talk, I want to basically introduce that new project that I've uh, uh, just started. And it all sort of relates to that kind of Islamization of Indonesian politics. Now, um, probably I don't have to, Um, uh, outline um, the story uh, with regard to state-Islam relations in Indonesia, but I usually do this as a backdrop for the story I want to tell. And so usually when we look at Indonesia, Indonesia's history, um, it is usually portrayed as a state Um, that is based on a a secular or an ecumenical uh, uh, ideological basis, right? The Panchasila, it's not a a state based on Islamic law. I think that's important. And so it really goes back to 1945, as you probably all know, when basically um, during the constitutional debates, uh, the so-called Jakarta Charter actually never made it into the Indonesian constitution. So the Jakarta Charter basically requiring all Indonesian Muslim to adhere to islamic law which would have essentially base, uh, based the indonesian state on, on sharia law because um, about 80 percent of indonesians are actually um, um, uh, muslim and so what is also interesting is that basically during the new order period the authoritarian new order period um, uh, political islam it's a complex relationship but overall you could say political islam actually was suppressed um, in in uh, indonesia by the military Um, um, uh, regime of course we all know there have been some uh, relations uh, mostly through the secret service and sometimes um, political islam has been used by the political regime but overall it's a relationship where political islam is not allowed to openly express um itself okay and so this is really the backdrop so a a, a secular uh, state ideology and political islam not really playing much of a role an open role um, in politics until 1998 and so what is really interesting is and again if you follow Indonesian politics you are well aware of this but then uh, suddenly after 1998 we have seen stories emerge like these and this is just a headline from last week okay and, uh, uh, and uh, show you a couple of these the Bangkok post many other uh, newspapers reported on, on this kind of latest uh, um, program or policy here where in East Java. Um, jurisdiction basically wanted to introduce virginity tests for schoolgirls so that you had to undergo such a test if you wanted to enroll uh, in in school Um, it it, it caused a public outcry and eventually the plan was actually um, uh, um, uh, abandoned but it just shows you that basically now we have more and more of these kind of stories come out of Indonesia another example would be that in Aceh um, um, we have now uh, local uh, regulations that uh, are basically targeting gay communities um, and that uh, are now basically saying that certain kind of behavior is, is, is no longer allowed uh, under local regulations. Another uh, an example here for another type is that increasingly religious minorities are being targeted. In Indonesia, the Ahmadi community is just probably the most well-known, but we also have now increasingly uh, local regulations uh, uh, issued against the Shia um, uh, minority, and just another type of Sharia regulation that we see targeting this time not a sexual minority, but um, a religious minority. And then finally, um, we also have um, just you know, something that is probably most immediately associated in, in, in the public perception with Islamic law that you also have now changes in the um, the, the criminal code, the legal code. Um, Aceh has, for example, at least tried to introduce a stoning as a way of punishing certain kind of behavior. So the bottom line basically is that we have more and more of these stories. And as you can see, they make international headlines, right? Um, And that is really what is now getting Indonesia into the news, you could say. So no longer the story of a secular, moderate kind of Islamic country, but increasingly these kind of stories are making international headlines. And so what is really fascinating is that the kind of narrative about what is actually going on, I completely disagree with okay and I just want to point out what I think is the usual standard narrative and then basically show what I think is actually happening so what we see is that increasingly we have these newspaper articles and studies uh, um, scholarly articles as well that talk about a broad Islamization of uh, Indonesian political uh, uh, life but also social life after 1998 in the context of the democratization process politics and uh, social life more broadly have become more islamic and that uh, expresses itself in increased levels of, of religiosity people are going more to the mosque many more women are wearing headscarves and whatnot and part of that entire process is that we see more and more of these local um, uh, and National Islamic Regulations. And it's that aspect that I focus on in, in my uh, research. So I'm not going to talk about so much about the broader kind of aspects. But what is interesting here is with regard to the Shariaization in Indonesia, the usual narrative is that this has all to do with Islamist parties, that basically after 1998, In the context of the political opening, parties were allowed to be established in Indonesia. Um, uh, Parties are allowed to compete in elections. And we have a couple of parties that indeed have emerged with a, a, an explicit Islamist agenda in the sense that they have actually asked for or pushed for a state based on Islamic law. And the usual narrative is that we see the Shariaization because these parties have become more powerful or they just become more vocal and basically more influential. Okay. And Part of that narrative is that basically the government, the state, so to speak, is opposing this kind of um, 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 uh, developments, okay? So that we have still a state that is based on that Panchasila ideology that is basically pushing back if these forces are trying to um, 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 uh, change Indonesia's political and social life. And so in that kind of context, there's also, uh, at least it was very much so, Um, uh, during the Bush uh, years in the United States that there was this kind of narrative that basically Indonesia um, in particular and Southeast Asia in general has become a a second front in the war against terrorism. And so what we see in Indonesia is sort of uh, just the latest example of a global jihadist kind of uh, a trend that we see in, in, in Muslim-majority countries. And this is something that really has its roots in a the democratization process and then transnational forces, Islamist parties taking advantage of this. And so this is usually how it's portrayed. And probably the best um, cartoon I've seen in the, in the sense that it's just portraying it in, in, a, in, a, in a way that um, is very close to this standard narrative is um, um, this cover here from the Far Eastern Economic Review, where um, the, this uh, scholar, Sandan Doom, who uh, has been around for quite some time, who has uh, written a book, my friend, The Fanatic, which you may have heard of, um, and who claims to be um, an, an expert on radical Islam in Southeast Asia. He basically wrote an article in the Far Eastern Economic Review, where he argued that military help should be increased to Indonesia, to basically take care of the growing Islamist threat, so that you have to support and shore up the secular government in Indonesia, so they can push against these kind of Islamist forces. Okay, And so, again, what you see here in this cartoon is that you have these secular politicians. If you uh, know Indonesian politics, you see that there's uh, uh, Gustur, Okay, in the middle we have Yudoyono, and then Megawati Sukarno Putri, that are like these shining examples of, of secular politicians that are defending, um, as it says here, democratic, progressive, and secular Indonesia. And then under the stage, you have these kind of, um, uh, you know, shady looking figures wearing a turban and holding up a sign that basically says Islamic Lord now. Okay? And so that really is, as I said, the narrative out there that you have these kind of forces um, fighting it out against one another. Okay, Now, what is really puzzling, however, is if you look at... Um, election results for Islamic par- Islamist party, Islamist parties. sorry. There's four parties, if you go through party platforms, that made an explicit statement in 1998 and 1999 that they want to establish a state based on Islamic law. No, you know, other parties have not made that statement. They have talked about religion, they have said Islam is important. There's actually just four parties that have made um, such a statement. So if you look at these four parties, you basically see that they have basically failed to um, gain uh, any kind of traction in Indonesian politics. If you compare the total vote figures for 1999, you see that in 2014, it's actually almost the same, okay? So they're they're really not even reaching 15% of the overall votes. And if it wouldn't be for the PKS, they probably would be um, gone um, uh, almost completely, right? So the, the, the story here is that we basically don't see Islamist parties doing really well in uh, Indonesian politics, okay? And so that is really a puzzle. How do you explain the Islamization of politics in Indonesian, standard narrative being that this has something to do with these parties, at the same time, they're not very strong and successful in the political arena, okay? What is also interesting is I find once I actually put these Sharia laws on a, on a map of Indonesia, you can actually see that they cluster in a very um, uh, small number of provinces, and I call them Sharia clusters. Okay, and so there's exactly six Sharia clusters. I would say one is in Aceh, the other one is in West Sumatra, one is in West Java, which has been uh, split into West Java and Banten, but I treat them as as one cluster. Okay, then we have South Kalimantan. South Sulawesi and then there's something interesting going on in East Java as well okay but what we have is by no means a picture where now you would see Shariaization across Indonesia's territory right so these kind of alarmist accounts of islamization in Indonesia that basically say every jurisdiction has now an islamic law it's not true at all about 10 percent of all provinces actually have sharia laws implemented adopted and probably about 40 percent of all um, districts and they all basically cluster as i said in a very small number of of areas okay so the puzzle really that um, i worked on over the last couple of years really was about um, exactly this issue so how do we explain um the adoption of these Sharia regulations despite the fact that islamist parties, have not done well at all. They have basically stayed at a very low level over the last 70 years. Okay. Um, and then also, how do we explain the variance within Indonesia? How do we explain this geographical dispersion that is just um, um, quite distinct? I found. Okay. And so basically, what I did next is I basically looked at these Sharia clusters and tried to find out what they do uh, have in common, right? And so once I started to read up on the history of these um, um, uh, clusters, and again, that doesn't surprise you if you uh, um, uh, know about the Indonesian history, what is really interesting is that in all these clusters, I think if you read the historical sources closely, you see some sort of a class conflict that really probably has its roots in um, the 19th century, 1870 or so, I would say. And it's exactly in that kind of period where we see economic changes, the colonial powers basically come up with land uh, laws and land deregulation laws that allow a counter-elite to emerge. So in all these clusters, we basically have rich landowners that emerge in the context of that deregulation of the land market, you could say. They take advantage of that. They accumulate land. They become powerful, wealthy, economically powerful, but what is interesting about these figures, most of them are actually from non-aristocratic backgrounds. Okay? So that basically means that traditional elites now have challengers they are facing in these areas. Okay, But these challengers are basically unable to um, dominate the state. So if you look at who actually sits in state positions, very often it's these traditional elites, the Menak in uh, West Java, the Andi in Sulawesi, Um, um, uh, and in in Aceh uh, also, again, aristocratic figures that are dominating the political sphere, you could say. Now, what is interesting about these counter-elites, that they start to push for more um, rights, you could say, or more participation, or basically they try to access the state and they couch that opposition in Islamist terms. Okay, so they basically say that they want to be part of politics and basically do so by appealing Um, or making appeals to an Islamist ideology that there should be a state based on Islamic law. And of course, they're attracted by a lot of these ideologies, because if you look at Muhammadiyah at that time, right, they emphasize how um, meritocracy is really important, how a merit-based value system is really important. They downplay um, aristocratic origin in terms of this being a criteria for being um, influential in politics and so therefore that group finds Islam um, very attractive. Okay. What we also have in all these Sharia clusters is that we have modernist Islamist organizations that are very active from around 1900. We have Persis, al Irsiad in West Java, and we have a couple of other organizations in Sulawesi as well. Muhammadiyah, for example, opens one of its first branches in in Makassar um, in the 1920s, I think. So that's one of the areas where they really are successful quite quickly because of these tensions, I would argue. And then, probably most important for my story, is that in all these Sharia clusters, with the exception of East Java, we have the Darul Islam rebellion. And you've all heard about the Darul Islam rebellion, basically a revolt against the central government. It's usually portrayed as a revolt by the central government. Um, uh, sorry, a revolt by local governments against the central government. But if you look closely at the Darul Islam, you also see that there actually are horizontal conflicts going on. So that many uh, um, uh, uh, of these new wealth elites are actually using the Darul Islam to oppose local elites as well. So it's not just about a center-periphery conflict, but we have a horizontal conflict in all these um, uh, Sharia clusters. And uh, in West Java, it starts in the late 1940s, it's over by the mid 1950s, but then in other areas, such as in South Sulawesi, for example, the Darul Islam is really active until 1965. Okay, now what is important here is, and we've already uh, just actually started to understand that, but we always sort of assumed that the Darul Islam was over by the time basically most of its leaders had been killed in 65, Kahar Muzakhar being killed in Sulawesi, and usually we see that as the end of Darul Islam. Now, what has been actually quite quite fascinating is that in the context of democratization, now we have actually seen that a lot of these networks have really survived. So they have just gone underground, these Darul Islam networks, and have sort of managed to stay alive throughout the New Order period. In Sulawesi, there's many, many pesantren, many boarding schools, many organizations as well that we now realize have actually been founded and then kind of um, uh, um, being kept alive by former Darul Islam leaders. The same is true for West Java, in Aceh as well. The book that has just been published about this is uh, by a, a, a scholar, Sola Uding, an Indonesian scholar, The Roots of Terrorism in Indonesia, where he really tracks these networks. And so for my story, that is very important because you really see how the Darul Islam networks basically work as a transmission belt for this Islamist ideology from the 1960s now until 1998. Okay, so in all these areas, we really now start to see how um, these networks never really went um, away, okay, and so it's exactly out of these networks, okay, that we basically um, now see these Islamist groups emerge. So after 1998, we see. Groups such as Forum Pembela Islam (FPI) that has become very vocal in Indonesia, Garis in uh, West Java, in Ciamjur, for example, they are very, very um, uh, um, uh, entrenched there. Or we have in probably the best organized movement, the KPPSI, um, that has pushed for a state based on Islamic law. And again, what is very important and interesting about these organizations is that if you look closely at the leaders, the figures of these organizations, there's always, almost always direct links to the Darul Islam rebellion in the 1940s. The best example for this would probably be the KPPSI in Sulawesi. The leader of the KPPSI um, um, is the son of the Darul Islam rebel leader in the 1960s. Kahar Muzakhar, his son now is the leader of the KPPSI. Okay? And so basically what we have now is a lot of these groups that are concentrated in these uh, former Darul Islam areas that are becoming now more vocal and more visible in the context of um, democratization. What do these figures do, or these these groups? They um, very often actually uh, uh, mobilize people for demonstrations. As you can see to your left, you basically have. Um, Um, uh, Here, a picture from uh, Jakarta where FPE basically uh, organized the demonstration. I don't remember what it was about, but it had something to do with morality issues, of course. And they also engage in, uh, you know, sweepings, they call them. As you can see here on your right, we have the FPE or the uh, Baris uh, troops that go to uh, Varung or they go to restaurants or clubs during Ramadan and basically make sure that um, Uh, no alcohol is being sold and whatnot. And so what is also interesting is they don't just do uh, demonstrations or sweepings, but they're also actually, um, I would probably say most of their work is happening behind the scene. They're like putting pressure on local governments to implement and adopt Sharia regulations. Okay. And so the question really is, why are these groups more influential? Why are they able to influence policymaking while Islamist parties are not? So the puzzle really is, we have a mobilization of Islamist actors, right? Islamist parties are mobilizing, Islamist groups, these groups are situated outside the party system. They are mobilizing as well, but just these figures are influential and Islamist parties are not influential. Okay? And so I think the explanation for why that is the case lies actually within the Indonesian state. So if you look at the Indonesian state, um, what has happened in Indonesia after 1998 at the local level, you basically see that um, two things have happened. Basically, there was a a, a reform of of institutional uh, structures which have actually introduced competition to local politics. And then at the same time, we basically have a situation where local parties are very, very poorly consolidated. Okay, And so I think it's that context that explains why these groups are um, uh, influential while Islamist parties are not influential. Let me show you what I uh, uh, think is happening. I first thought that maybe these groups have actually gained access to the state, that they basically are able to win local elections, and then they are sitting there, they become Bupati or Valikota, and then implement these Sharia regulations. So basically what I did is I uh, collected the CVs of all the, I tried at least to collect all the CVs of everyone who has been running in these local elections in these six Sharia clusters since uh, 1999. So the candidates that are running for the post of mayor or the post of district uh, head, Walikota and Bhupati. And it's actually, it's not easy to do, to collect that material because you physically need to go to all these districts. But once you're in the district, you actually get the CVs of these figures because the local election commission is required to actually collect these uh, biographical information, right? Because um, everyone who wants to participate in these elections needs to submit a CV and it's a standard form that is used across Indonesia. So you basically have a very good tool once you get the CVs to compare across uh, uh, jurisdictions, right? And as in any other uh, country, Indonesian politicians are also, um, you know, not suffering from low self esteem. So they basically are filling out that form and put all that information in there. And usually you get really like their data back to their uh, high school years. So you have about 25 years of data in terms of what the back. Is of these people. And so I basically um, managed to uh, uh, collect about 2,000 CDs and basically then started to classify them or categorize them in terms of occupation. Okay. I also looked at What have they been doing over the last 20 years in terms of, have they been a member of the New Order bureaucracy, have they been a member of the military, have they been member of the police, or are they actually members of these groups, right? Of course, they wouldn't write down that they are members of these groups, but at least they wouldn't say, I have actually been a bureaucrat, because they were not allowed to be part of the bureaucracy. In Sulawesi, for example, many laws were adopted that push people that had been part of the Darul islam out of the bureaucracy, right? And so basically if, i just show you this for Sulawesi, um, basically if you look, and I came up with a couple of categories, and we can talk more about this later in terms of how I established these categories, but what is really important is that about 90% of all the candidates are either bureaucrats or military figures or policemen that had um, basically uh, established their career during the New Order. A couple of academics, a couple of journalists, a couple of soap opera stars as well, but overall, the majority of Indonesian, and this is important, not just candidates, but sorry, not just winners, but candidates as well, are basically from within the New Order elite. Okay, so these Islamist groups, they don't even compete in these elections, they don't even They don't even send candidates into these races, so the 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 competition basically occurs within a very narrow elite that has its roots in um, the new order. Mainly bureaucrats, BNS are fighting it out against one another, okay? So there's not much going on in Indonesian local politics in terms of elite turnover, okay? So most figures that are competing, most figures that are winning are from within the new order. What is interesting, however, is, and this is different, this is where change has really happened, is that there now is intense competition between these figures. And to show you this, I basically calculated, we call that in political science, the number of effective candidates. You can basically calculate the um, fragmentation of local politics by looking at vote uh, numbers, and then you just calculate how many votes have been given to uh, a certain candidate, and if that number of effective candidates falls below two, you basically have no competition. So you basically just have one viable candidate that had enough votes to win. Okay, and so if you look at this, I hope, I hope you can see it, you basically see that most of elections were actually competitive. So there's almost no election in Sulawesi over the last 17 years where you didn't have at least two viable candidates in these elections. So it's the same old elite, but they are really now competing against one another. So it's it's a true electoral democracy in that sense, that you have people that now need to work to actually get into office, okay? And so it's in that context, I think, that these local Islamist groups actually have a distinct advantage, I think. Let me show you um, what I what I mean so we have secular elites that continue to dominate the state that i think is the main message from the slide before okay there's electoral competition among these state elites and that basically means that there are uh, there is now um, a, a lot more pressure on these local elites to as i say mobilize and structure the electorate right because you can't go and try to mobilize a hundred thousand people you need to have vote brokers for you power brokers you need to have local networks that basically mobilize the electorate on your behalf okay now if you look at as i said before local party structures indonesian local parties are very very poorly Um, um, uh, consolidated at the local level, okay? So they have no infrastructure, they're dirt poor as well, and actually a lot of them have very bad reputations as well. And so if you want to think of these candidates now being forced to accumulate capital, like Pierre Bourdieu says, right? There's economic capital, there's uh, um, uh, cultural capital, and there's um, um, uh, social capital, right? Parties can't supply any of these. Parties are poor, as I said, they can't supply economic capital. They have poor local networks, so social capital also doesn't come from parties. And cultural capital, reputation, um, justification um, uh, 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 for the kind of agenda you have. Islamic parties are not doing well at all because in the context of becoming more involved in Indonesian politics, they have had their fair share of corruption scandals, sex scandals, There's all sorts of jokes out there about uh, Islamist parties in Indonesia that PKS actually stands for uh, Partai Kotorskali, the very dirty party, right? Because they have actually been involved in all these um, um, uh, um, uh, scandals, sex scandals, or the, the Partai Kroni Suharto, the party of Suharto cronies because they've been involved in corruption scandals. So they can't really supply cultural capital either to these candidates, okay? And so what I think now is the distinct advantage of these local groups is that they actually can supply most of these kind of requirements. So these groups have very good and strong local networks. As I said, in West Chawa, Garis claims at least to have around 20,000 followers in that one district alone. It's impossible to verify these figures, but if you spend time on the ground, you actually really see how these groups are very active in Majelis Dakhlim organizations. They are uh, you know, uh, organizing mosque networks on the ground, and they have been around for many, many decades, literally since the 1940s. So they are able to supply social capital. They're also able to supply cultural capital because unlike Islamist parties, their reputation is actually sort of intact. So if you want to portray yourself as a state elite, as a conservative religious politician, you want to team up with these figures and not with the PKS who is just struggling with the latest sex scandal, right? And so these figures really can give you that if that is what you're looking for. With regard to economic capital, I've come across a couple of cases where these groups have been crucial in helping local state elites to um, establish alcohol monopolies, for example, or they have been uh, crucial in collecting religious taxes for local authorities. And so they really, again, make sure that because of their local network, the resources, the revenues are flowing for these uh, state um, um, uh, elites. And so in exchange for their support during election or in the context of elections, these state elites that have nothing to do with Islam, they basically adopt these Sharia regulations. And so this is the kind of process I see at the local level in terms of why these Sharia regulations are being adopted and why they're just adopted in a couple of Sharia clusters, as I call them. So the state elites approach these Islamist groups in the context of their fights with one another, okay? And so because they need these networks that reach downward and outward, in the political system, they basically find these figures. If they go and try to structure society in these areas, they find these, uh, these, these organizations, and therefore then come up with certain kind of policies. Just to give you an example here, what I came across in Sulawesi, Um, uh, 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 um, For me, a good uh, 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 way to show you the machine politics that are going on at the local level in the name of Islam. This is an an excerpt of about a hundred page document I found where the local Bhupati basically established that uh, scheme where he is giving money to um, Imams and local uh, mosque um, uh, figures on a weekly basis. So they have to come to the Count of Bhubati, um once a week to get their 100,000 Rupee, and then they have to sign. And some of them can't write, so they just sign with their, with their uh, f- fingerprint, right? And so that is just a way where you can see how these local figures are establishing these machine networks through that kind of um, um, uh, Islamist kind of uh, agenda all of that money comes out of Sakhat um, uh, uh, funds. So the Badanamil Sakat basically supplies the funds for these kind of local machine politics. Okay, and so if you basically um, want to have a summary in terms of why I think we see the kind of adoption of Sharia uh, laws um, in Indonesia, the way it is, I think there's two things that are important. So the first is um, the changing power relations between these uh, state elites, as I said before, it's still the same figures, but they're now competing against one another, so they need to reach out and reach down in um, the political arena. Okay? So therefore, state elites have become more receptive to pressures within society. Okay? But, and this is an important qualification, They have only become more receptive to groups that actually can provide them with resources, information and resources in very broad terms, as I said, economic capital, social capital, cultural capital, if you can provide that, you now have a fair chance in Indonesia to actually influence politics. And I would argue this also works for NGOs, if you are probably interested in health issues, if for some reason you manage to get into that position where you can provide local state elites with information and resources, you have a fair chance to influence the policy making process. But what is interesting here is that, as I said, Islamist parties are unable to provide these information and resources, and therefore they have been relatively inconsequential after 1998, and Islamist groups, in contrast, are able to provide these resources, so therefore they actually have been able to influence the policymaking process. What that basically means is that state elites are mediating the Islamization process in Indonesia. You can only understand why we see these geographical uh, uh, patterns and the variance within Indonesia if you take state elites into account and their kind of incentives to adopt these uh, laws or not. And so what we basically have is a situation where Um, islamist parties are not the transmission belt for whatever is there in society but it's these groups that are very confined to certain kind of areas that have become more powerful in the context of that new kind of elite competition okay and so i think that explains why we see these sharia clusters and this is what i've done over the last um, couple of years now let me show you what i am trying to do Um, uh, Next, I basically now want to focus on just the jurisdictions that have adopted these Sharia laws, right? And I am now basically interested in finding out how Sharia laws travel from one district to another. And we call that um, diffusion. So what I've looked at over the last couple of years is the adoption. Why are they being adopted? How do we explain the adoption? Which basically means um, why are, in certain jurisdictions, Sharia laws formally accepted as a policy? But what I want to do next is, I basically want to look at the movement of a policy from one jurisdiction to another. So I'm interested in the interdependence between jurisdictions with regard to Islamic law. Okay, And so for that reason, or for, to that end, you could say, I basically started to now look at the content of these Sharia regulations. and. <clears throat> um, A couple of things here are important. Why did I look at the content? Most of the diffusion uh, literature that is coming out of the United States mainly, where people are studying the diffusion of morality policies in the United States, anti-gay regulations, anti-gambling regulations, Um, um, anti-alcohol regulations, they very often actually focus on actors. So they basically want to find out who is actually doing it. I thought it would be more interesting to look at the content because you can come up with a more nuanced understanding of Islamization. Because I'm interested in finding out whether as Sharia laws are diffusing, are they becoming more radical, or are they more becoming stricter? You could say. Are they enriched, or are they watered down as they are diffusing across Indonesia? So, are basically jurisdictions that adopt Sharia regulations late in the diffusion process? Are they adopting more radical versions of the Islamic law, or more? Um, uh, watered-down versions of Islamic law, and you can only do that if you look at the content. If you look at actors, you basically just have a binary kind of understanding. Do they adopt it or don't they adopt it, right? Of course, in the second kind of process, I probably need to look at actors. But let's just stay with the content quickly. So I basically went through all the Sharia regulations that I collected, about 443 Sharia regulations, and uh, basically found out that most of the Sharia regulations actually focus on um, so-called Islam-related issues, Quran-reading capabilities that need to be improved, what Muslims should be wearing, especially women or bureaucrats, um, uh, stuff like that. About 40% of Islamic uh, Sharia regulations focus on so-called morality issues. Um, You can't belong to the wrong religion, you can't be gay. Um, you, uh, 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 you know, can go and see prostitutes and whatnot. So that is the kind of morality policy that um, uh, is falling into that 40% category. So there's about 170 of these across Indonesia, and about 250 of Sharia regulations are uh, concerned about Islam in terms of Quran reading, Saqqad collection, and whatnot. And so basically, I looked then just at the gray, in, in this first kind of stage now, I just looked at the gray, um um, islam-related sharia regulations and if you divide that up in terms of what actually is happening within the gray part of that of that pie okay you basically see there that most islamic laws are related to zakat the uh, collection and distribution of religious arms and then uh, the second one is basically about islamic knowledge that uh, Sharia regulations say Islamic knowledge should be increased among Indonesian citizens, right? And so they, they are pushing for that in some form or fashion. And so in my first content analysis, I basically looked at zakat collection and Islamic knowledge, just because there's most, most regulations are concerned with that, right? And so then basically based on um, a couple of years of of uh, reading student essays and trying to detect plagiarism, right? I basically went through all these Sharia regulations and just looked at basically what is the first Sharia regulation that has been adopted on that issue, and Sakkat collection, and then basically went through all other Sakkat collection Sharia regulations and basically really just looked for um, um overlaps in terms of, of um, content, right? Pretty much what you do if you look at student essays and you try to find out whether they have plagiarized or not. And what you can see is, and again, this is just an example, uh, there's uh, plenty of pages that look like that, where I basically just looked at where do we find that one paragraph in the first law on this in other Sharia regulations, and then basically try to establish patterns, okay? And so you can see here comparing Sharia regulations on Salkat, the first one has been adopted in 1999, a national law that has then simply been copy pasted in many ways at the sub-national level. Okay, and so if we look at the broader um, diffusion process here, and again these are very early uh, uh, results, right, but we basically see that there is a diffusion along vertical lines and along horizontal lines. So Most Sakat regulations in Indonesia actually have only been adopted after a national law has been adopted on that issue. In 1999, we have a national Sakat law, and then after that, local jurisdictions begin to introduce their own Sharia regulation on Sakat, and very often they just copy-paste what they've seen in the national law. But in addition to this vertical diffusion, we also have a horizontal diffusion that actually many jurisdictions then go to these early adopters. And basically, also based on what they see there, adopt their own um, Sharia regulation. What is interesting is that in that kind of horizontal diffusion process, we see an enrichment of the content. So the regulations suddenly become stricter; they become harsher. They introduce higher sanctions for violations. They introduce higher Sakat uh, contribution um, uh, figures and whatnot. And so as Sakat collection uh, laws are spreading horizontally, they become more, you could say, more radical or more, more uh, comprehensive, probably a more n- uh, neutral um, uh, word. What is also quite fascinating, I find, is that again, the diffusion process happens mainly within these Sharia clusters. Sakat regulations, which are probably the most technical, the most neutral of all Islamic regulations, actually struggle to spill into other provinces. We almost never see actually Sakat regulations spill into provinces or jurisdictions that are not within these Sharia clusters. There's about 61 Um, Sakat regulations across Indonesia and 90% of them are actually falling into these Sharia clusters. So again, this idea that we see an Islamization of Indonesia that just affects every single district in Indonesia, is just not true at all. Okay, And what is also interesting is that we basically see what an important role the national level plays as well in triggering some of these kind of um, diffusion processes. The second regulation I looked at, or type, is, as I mentioned before, Islamic knowledge, which is the second largest group within that larger group of um, uh, Islam related content. And again, um, I basically looked for um, patterns in the same kind of fashion. And so what we see here is that basically, we don't have a vertical uh, uh, diffusion, we basically have mainly a, a horizontal diffusion. So this is really something that has um, uh, its roots and its origins at the subnational level, un- unlike the sakhat uh, Sharia regulations, which again just shows you immediately how diverse the Islamization process actually is. But what is also even more interesting, I find, is that actually there are tremendous differences with regards to Islamic knowledge Sharia regulations within these Sharia clusters. In West Java, for example, most of these kind of Sharia regulations are basically saying that students should actually get uh, better Quran reading skills by visiting these private boarding schools that are referred to at, uh, as madrasa dinia, right? And so that is something we only see in West Java. We don't see that in any other Sharia cluster. If you go for uh, for if you uh, analyze the Sharia regulations in West Ch- in, in West Sumatra, sorry, for instance, in West Sumatra, the Sharia regulations basically say that um, you should increase your uh, quran reading skills by basically just going to more quran reading classes within the established official school system so they don't try to channel people into the private sector so to speak of the education sector okay and again what we see is that none of these regulations actually manage to travel to the provincial level or even the national level so again it's a very local um, 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 phenomena, uh, ph- phenomenon in 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 both uh, uh, in 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 all these uh, kind of Sharia clusters. Okay, so I have about five more minutes. So let me just uh, basically broaden this up and and look quickly at the kind of literature that is out there with regard to the diffusion of morality policies. And again, um, I've read uh, uh, quite a few. Uh, 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 books now over the last couple of months on uh, morality policies in, in in the United States, and if you think Indonesian local politics are are messy and interesting, you have not yet discovered American local politics is actually fascinating in terms of the dynamics that are out there uh, with regard to morality policies, and so. I think after reading through some of this literature, and again, I don't know much about it yet, but I think there are probably about five approaches, you could say, that basically try to explain why and how morality policies spread in the way they do. The first kind of theory that is out there is basically saying it has all to do with geographical proximity. That basically, if jurisdictions are close to one another, there are spillover effects. we see that not just with regard to morality policies, but we see that with regard to health policies as well. That in the United States, very often you see a race to the bottom because if you have one jurisdiction that has very good health regulations and another one has very bad health regulations, the fear is that all poor and sick people from that one jurisdiction will travel to that other jurisdiction. So that jurisdiction here has great incentives to abolish their policies so that they basically reach the poor level of the other kind of jurisdiction. So geographical proximity seems to play a role in morality policies, health policies as well. There's even a term for that I learned, it's called the greyhound therapy in in, in the United States. So once in a while, um, a, a lot of these mental health clinics are cleaning out their wards and they're just placing patients in greyhound buses with a, a supply of medication for a week or so and send them to another, uh, another state. And, and so uh, California, for example, deals with um, uh, sick patients from Nevada uh, uh, once a year or so because um, they are just closed geographically. And so they are now adjusting their welfare system because they don't want to have that spillover. They don't want to deal with the Greyhound therapy um, uh, consequences, so to speak, right? And so the question really is, is that happening in Indonesia? And immediately, I think you can say it's not. It has nothing to do with geographical proximity because these Sharia clusters are very far apart from one another. Even if you look at the dispersion within these Sharia clusters, you actually see that there are certain districts that don't have any of these uh, regulations within these uh, uh, six provinces. I also actually have just found one Bhupati that had made a statement in the local press where he basically said, well, we need a Sharia law against alcohol consumption because if we don't have one, all the drunks from the district next door are coming to our district to uh, basically get drunk, right? So we need to have that as well. I found only one uh, in in, uh, about the the 10 years I've looked at this just one episode or anecdote where basically you could argue that this Sharia regulation has been adopted because of geographical proximity to other jurisdictions that have the same kind of law. So I think that's not really happening in the United States. Another argument has been that it has something to do with local subcultures. And again, uh, the broad literature, how you actually define and operationalize local subculture, right? You can look at the role of women in the workforce. You can look at what kind of economy is actually in place. Is it a service economy? Then you can also look at uh, religious kind of uh, um, uh, groups as well. And so people have established some sort of measures to basically come up with the theory that says in areas where you have conservative subcultures, a high uh, propensity of uh, 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 fanatic Protestants, for example, or uh, Catholics, Um, you basically then very often have morality policies against prostitution, of course, morality policies against um, uh, uh, gay marriage, uh, for instance. And I would say that is an argument that probably travels best to Indonesia, that you basically have. For some reason, something is happening in these six areas. And again, I think it has something to do with the broader class conflict in these areas that has created a local subculture that is conducive to the diffusion of these Sharia regulations. Okay, Let me look just at two, uh, three more um, uh, theories here. Another one says it has something to do with institutional context. In the United States, because it's a federal system, you have certain kind of states where you have direct elections for mayors and district heads. In other states, you have indirect elections, and so the argument is in areas where you have indirect elections, these mayors are just less receptive to what is going on in society, so it's difficult for morality laws to spread to these areas, even if you have a conservative local subculture, so two and three, you need to sort of understand in combination with one another, okay? now. That argument, again, does not travel to Indonesia, because Indonesia, as we all know, is a decentralized state, but it's a unitary state. So the institutional setup at the local level is the same for all jurisdictions. So you can't say now this jurisdiction has um, a, a morality policy because it has direct elections, and this one doesn't because it has indirect elections, because in Indonesia, all jurisdictions have direct elections so in other words you could say Sharia regulations are actually underutilized in a lot of uh, um, um, jurisdictions in Indonesia so the legal framework would allow them to adopt but they don't they could if they wanted to but they don't which again brings me back to this uh, argument that maybe local subculture plays a role in the diffusion process Intergovernmental relations have been said to play a role in the American context if you have uh, uh, if you have a state, Illinois, let's say, that allows gay marriage. It's easier for counties than to allow gay marriage. The other way around, if they are against prostitution in California, harder for counties to establish laws that allow prostitution. Now again, in Indonesia, that doesn't travel Um, because it's a unitary state, so there isn't uh, really much of a difference between um, intergovernmental relations and what we actually, sorry, uh, about provincial regulations and and, and district regulations. So again, you could argue that most provinces are underutilizing the uh, legal framework. They could adopt these uh, regulations if they wanted, but they don't. Finally, economic um, uh, uh, factors have been said to help the diffusion. If, uh, for example, you have um, a jurisdiction where um, uh, you have a, a poor economic situation, a lot of these jurisdictions then, of course, are not going to uh, adopt anti gambling regulations, for example, because they need the revenues from the casinos, for example. So there's a direct correlation between financial distress and whether you actually adopt a gambling regulation or not. And again, in Indonesia, economic factors, I think, are not playing that much of a role, because if you look at these Sharia clusters, there's actually the broad range in terms of socio-economic conditions. Aceh is actually fairly rich. West Java is also actually fairly rich in the sense that it's just the economic powerhouse of Indonesia. Sulawesi uh, actually fairly poor, right? And so also if you look at, let's say, uh, the Gini coefficients in these areas, or you look at the size of the middle class, there are broad differences between these Sharia clusters. So this argument that basically these um, uh, Sharia regulations are um, adopted in poor and destitute districts as the development industry has made in the Indonesian case, again, doesn't really travel um, uh, to Indonesia um, because you see so much difference in terms of the socioeconomic conditions with regard to these Sharia clusters. Okay, so basically to sum up, um, uh, Islamization in Indonesia it's not the kind of broad phenomenon with regard to Sharia regulations. It's not the kind of broad phenomenon that we see in the press that now entire Indonesia is being Islamized and basically every jurisdiction has um, Sharia regulations. It's a very local phenomenon. It's a very confined phenomenon. It's basically just happening in a couple of areas and also very important, Islamist parties don't really play a role in this process. So we can sort of Uh, we should, I think, get away from this idea that we should look at election figures and uh, basically think that we understand anything about Islamization in Indonesia by trying to uh, uh, find out how well PKS has done in the last election. So after every election in Indonesia, you see these newspaper reports about how Indonesian parties, Islamist parties have not done well and how that is really great for Indonesia, but that is not where the story is actually unfolding. The story is unfolding outside the official party system. And so I think the diffusion process and the adoption process actually show that quite nicely. Thank you.